The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1923, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded to Frederick Bartling and John McLeod for their discovery of insulin, which led to the successful treatment of diabetes. In physics, it went to Robert Andrews Millikan, who successfully measured how much charge an electron has. But the name we remember from that year was the laureate in literature, William Butler Yeats, the Irish poet and playwright who was, said the presenter, the foremost and most versatile poet of the Celtic revival and the Anglo-Irish movement. He's achieved what few poets have been able to do, said the presenter, succeeded in preserving contact with his people while upholding the most aristocratic artistry. Quote, he has been able to follow the spirit that early appointed him the interpreter of his country, a country that had long waited for someone to bestow on it a voice. End quote. And it turns out he was just getting started. Today, the Nobel Prize Committee website notes that Yeats was one of a small handful of writers whose most enduring work was written after being awarded the prize. If this were an Academy Award or some other kind of annual prize, he might have won it again. He was a remarkable figure from a remarkable family. William Butler Yeats, today on The History of Literature. Hey, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Jack Wilson, your humble little narrator on this great journey through literature. Speaking of which, this is an unexpected stop on our journey. Yates was not on the calendar, not on our schedule. He's one of my favorite writers, and there is much to dig into here. I'm expecting to cover him in multiple episodes. We might not get much beyond his family and his childhood here. We'll see. Maybe we'll skip around a bit. I've been reading Yeats with great pleasure and admiration for about 30 years. My goodness, it's not quite like the Beatles for me. Have you been watching the, the Let It Be documentary, the revamping of Let It Be, Get Back, the Peter Jackson film? It's like an atom bomb for me, changing everything. I'm staggering around in kind of a haze. Maybe we should. That could be the COVID booster, too. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we should do a show on that. On the get back, why not? I have some ideas. We will see. Anyway, Yates is so rich and such a fascinating creature. I don't want to limit myself to one episode. We'll do our best with this one, though, because that is who we are and that is what we do. We try to bring it. But here's why we're on to Yeats. Yeats. There I go. Keats is Keats and Yates is Yates, people. Well, here's why we're on to Yates today. We could not resist. Every holiday season between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I get all tangled up in Ireland. I have no idea why. I'm not Irish. Other than, other than I started this habit of reading Joyce's Dubliners every year, this time of year, one story a day until culminating with the dead on Christmas Eve. It's a tradition, a literary advent calendar, so to speak. And I've talked about this in past years, so I won't dwell on it here. You can find that in the archives if you want. Maybe there's something about Dublin and Ireland that always gets me this time of year because of those stories. 
Maybe it's the snow or the the horses and the rum, whiskey, Guinness. It's sort of a, a Dickensian feel I have for the Dublin, a Victorian look, a turn-of-the-century look. Maybe it's what my Wisconsin Christmases were like in an idealized form as I traveled back to my grandparents' homes, which was a bit like traveling back in time, traveling to the homes of a Mr. James Joyce or a Mr. W.B. Yeats, I don't know. The things we ate, the way the tables were set, the general geniality, the toughness of life, with a few notes of happiness and grace shining through like candlelight glinting on the silverware. Who knows? So there's that. It's the holiday season. This one is a bit tough for me and my family this holiday season, but that's part of getting older, isn't it? You start taking the blows and shielding the young'uns from the pain. People close to you fall ill and stumble, and you are doing your best to keep the brave face going. Feeding people, sustaining them, nurturing them, trying to create space for others to feel the joy. And maybe by their joy, you can feel a bit of it yourself. Good gravy. This has turned a little maudlin, but that's Christmas too. That's why it's at the winter solstice. After all, it's a period of darkness and rebirth. Okay, and there's a more immediate trigger for Yates that I can point to beyond just the part where the mood seems right for him, the seasonal mood. The poet Robert Bly died recently, and his obituaries quoted something about Yates that made me want to jump back in, revisit Yates, and spend some time with him, and also to do a little taking stock on where we are as a podcast and as a seeker. All of us together. I'm a philosopher junkie who gets his fix through literature. Is literature dying? That was the question we asked at the start of all this. I don't know. Five years ago or so, that was the question. Does it still have power, literature? Have we moved on? I'll tell you about Robert Bly and his life-changing moment. One of a few such moments that guy had, actually, but the one about Yeats is the one I care about the most. I will tell you about that after we take a short break. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious, ready-to-eat meals. 
These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor Meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, Robert Bly, the American poet you might know from his Iron John phase, which turned into men chanting in the woods and getting in touch with their relationships with their manliness and their father figure needs and so on, looking for initiation rituals, mythopoetic dramas, beating on drums. It's easy to parody that movement, and maybe someday we'll treat it with some sensitivity look into it a little further. Bly was a poet before that. He was a better poet than a psychologist or a philosopher, in my opinion. He definitely cared deeply about the craft and the possibility of poetry. He was a fan. He devoted his life to it, and bravo for that. And it started with Yeats. Here's what the Guardian's obituary of Bly says. Quote, it was at Harvard that he read a poem by W.B. Yeats and resolved to, quote, be a poet for the rest of my life, end quote. That quote actually is a bit distorted in The Guardian. I think there was a game of telephone going on with that quote running around in the newspapers. What's quoted is a paraphrase, but it's been repeated so many times, they now put it in quotation marks. The full quote comes from an essay that Robert Bly wrote for the New York Times in 1984. He described coming home from the Navy and enrolling in college and transferring to Harvard where he was surrounded by poets and writers like Donald Hill and Frank O'Hara and George Plimpton and John Ashbery and Adrian Rich, who was at Radcliffe, and several others. And he said, quote, One day while studying a Yeats poem, I decided to write poetry the rest of my life. I recognized that a single short poem has room for history, music, psychology, religious thought, mood, occult speculation, character, and events of one's own life, end quote. Now, I will confess that this made me want to read some of Robert Bly's poems, so I have, but what it really, really made me want to do was return to Yeats. As far as I know, Bly never mentioned what the Yeats poem was that inspired him. Maybe it doesn't matter. It could have been one of a dozen or more. You could say this about Rilke, too, or Shakespeare, or Emily Dickinson, or Elizabeth Bishop, or lots of other people. A single short poem has room for history, music, psychology, religious thought, mood, occult speculation, character, and events of one's own life. What a powerful thing. What a powerful thing. It's why we're here, isn't it? It's why I do this podcast and why you found it, I suspect, because we find this fascinating and compelling, this magic that literature can do. A single short poem has room for all those things, history, music, psychology, mood, character, events of occult speculation, all that. Yeats got all that into his poem. 
put that into his words and got them onto the page. And a young poet interested in language and myths and looking for something himself found it. Marvelous stuff. Let's hear from a couple of listeners before we dive into Yates. Dear listener, Gina sends an email with the subject, Breaking News from 1795, Jane Austen Falls in Love. Boy, you can't click on an email faster than I open that one up. She says, I saw this news item this morning and had to write you about it, Jack, given your segments on Jane Austen in Love. Rare to see breaking news from 1795. Indeed. Breaking and breathtaking. That's our Jane. We want so much for her to have been in love and happy, and we appreciate her so profoundly. Endlessly fascinating. This article talks, wouldn't it be nice to have had a film crew at some of those balls she attended with Mr. Tom LaFroy? This article talks about Tom LaFroy, whom we talked about in an episode or two about a year ago. I think that's how we started out 2021. In fact, unless it was 2020. Oh, time is flying. A young Irishman, speaking of the Irish, Tom LaFroy, her Irishman. There is some textual analysis in this article of a poem in Emma. It's, it's it's a little out there for me. This author of this article found some letters in the text and did some extrapolating and added a few letters to make things work and wound up with a text that spelled out the word told me for, which is an anagram for Tom LaFroy right there in the novel, Emma. You can check out the article if you'd like. Thank you, Gina, for passing along this breaking news from 226 years ago. It's much better than anything I found on the front page of my newspaper this morning, with the possible exception of some news from Japan and the miracle rescue of a man who was uh, rescued after 22 hours drifting in rough seas, or the world's vast networks of underground fungi which are going to be mapped for the first time. Well, bravo, I say. Kudos to the underground fungi mappers for the amazing science news that researchers have found that xenobots can give rise to offspring. It's another headline today. Xenobots can give rise to offspring. I know there are people out there who will say, my God, what are we doing? The xenobots could get out of control and take over the planet. But I say, let's think about these synthetic life forms made by cells from frog embryos and assembled into clusters. Isn't it time they know what it's like to love and be loved by a synthetic life form made by cells from frog embryos and assembled into a cluster of their own? A xenobot junior pitter-pattering on the stair or propelling themselves around the petri dish using hair-like projections called cilia? moving around in a corkscrew pattern, crashing into other loose cells and smushing and pushing the cells into piles before naturally falling apart after about two weeks. Life is stark, cold, and lonely for a xenobot, my friends. Their fate is a cruel one. It's no wonder they've turned, into, turned to self-replication to find a little meaning in this universe of ours. They're perfectly happy in fresh water. A researcher says, how do you know that? How do you know how happy they are in fresh water? <laughs> okay. Our last email today comes from Janet or Jeanette. Dear listener, Janet or Jeanette, I'm not sure. I will try them both and let Janet slash Jeanette choose which one to hear. She says, hi, Jack. 
I just listened to episode 98. Oh, oh dear. When I see a sentence like that, my heart just sinks. I'm afraid when people go back that far because I didn't really know what I was doing then. The only thing that sustains me in the grip of that fear is the comfort of knowing that I don't know what I'm doing now either. So how bad can the drop-off in quality be? You can't fall down from a ditch. Janet reminds, Jeanette reminds me of the poem, Little Willie, that I learned from my dad, my dad's favorite poem. She shared with us the poem that her father enjoyed as his favorite. It's four lines. But wait, before I get there, let me repeat Little Willie so we can see. This is like a battle of the dad poems. Little Willie was my father's favorite poem, with the possible exception of The Passing of the Back House by James Whitcomb Riley, which he framed and hung in our bathroom. But this was the second best. I almost said it was number two, which is... Maybe not good in this context. We're at the dinner table now, and he's telling us his favorite poem of all time. Here it is. Little Willie took a chance, caught the ball, but lost his pants. He's out, cried the team with a cheer, and so was Little Willie's rear. Okay, it's not Louise Gluck, but it has some charms. So what does Jeanette's dad like? Shakespeare, maybe, Milton, Dryden. It's four lines. Spring has sprung, the grass has riz, I wonder where the birdies is. There you go, says Jeanette. That's her, that's her commentary on her dad's favorite poem. There you go. It's actually the perfect commentary for that poem. It is what it is. It stands for what it stands for. It needs no exegesis. Spring has sprung, the grass has riz. I wonder where the birdies is. There we go. Quick break, and we'll be back with the story of William Butler Yeats. As I was gearing up for this during the break, getting ready to launch into my Yates discussion, I can tell we are going to run out of time. I can already tell I'm going to go crazy just thinking about it. So let's do this. Today, we'll just focus on Yates the person. We'll do a follow-up episode that's focused on the poems themselves and maybe the plays. Yates deserves this, this double or triple episode treatment, I think. In fact, I'd sort of like to usher that in. For next year, too. Sigmund Freud. That's going to be two episodes, don't you think? And Fernando Pessoa and Elizabeth Bishop and Walt Whitman. My goodness. Dante. We've done one episode on La Vita Nuova. I think we should probably do three more to cover the, the Divine Comedy, don't you think? Okay. William Butler Yeats was born in 1865 into an artistic family. A pretty remarkable family, actually, the Yeatses. His father was a lawyer and a painter of portraits named John Butler Yeats. John Butler was born in a small village in Northern Ireland, Ireland, the north of Ireland, I mean, in 1839. He married a woman named Susan Pollocksfin in Sligo in 1841. Susan, who was described as the most beautiful woman in Sligo, came from a family of stalwart merchants, full of virtue, 
Susan married a young and upcoming lawyer, and it is said she was dismayed when he set aside his law career to become an artist. Already, I'm catching myself. Did I say they were married in 1841? That would have made him uh, two years old. No, they were married in 1863. John Butler and Susan Pollocksfin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But she married what she thought was a young and upcoming lawyer, and or he was, I guess, at that time. But it's time for her dismay. He set aside his law career to become an artist. In their first two years of marriage, he earned exactly 10 pounds, which came when he won a college prize for eloquence. The two of them had six children together. A biography of the Yeatses describes her as a shadowy figure caught between the practicality of her family and the irresponsibility of the Yeatses, including her talented children and her brilliant but unpredictable husband. We'll get to the talented children in a moment, but for now, let's let's look a little more at Susan, the mother, who, quote, went quietly, pitifully mad, end quote. She died in 1900 when William Butler was in his mid-30s. Susan was not a bohemian. She was not expecting to be one, and she was not happy about it, and John Butler sort of saw all this unfolding Fifty years later, he said, I became engaged on two or three days' acquaintance, and it was not first love or love at all, but just destiny. And he said he couldn't talk to her. If I showed her my real thoughts, she became quite silent for days, though inwardly furious. The marriage did not go well. Before the wedding day, he wrote her this letter, quote, I hope you won't henpeck me, and make me withdraw from the intimacy of all people who are not acceptable to your ladyship. You are fond of the exercise of power and authority in which I quite agree and which bodes ill to my freedom. I shall be afraid to ask anybody to the house without first asking your permission, and if I do, how cross you'll be with your head thrown back, your utterance short and abrupt, your dress rustling angrily the storeroom key grating harshly and sharply in the lock, how my spirits will sink, and how uncomfortable the unfortunate guest will be, and what a milksop I'll be thought, and what a tyrant you'll be thought, and how you'll be dreaded accordingly, how my poor sisters will tremble at your frown, and how we shall make common cause together. End quote. Not exactly a a love letter to your fiancé, I would say. On their honeymoon, John Butler Yates got sick with diphtheria. He sent for his mother, who came to pick him up in an invalid carriage and took him to Dublin, leaving Susan, the bride, alone in the railway hotel in Galway. It was sort of how things were going to go. Lily Yates, William Butler's sister, said their mother used to fall asleep often at all times of day and night. Her illness was mental. Lily said, describing what we would probably today call depression. She used to fall asleep as a young woman any time she sat quiet for a while or read out to us children. We just rattled her up again, poor woman. Later in life, William Butler suggested he had not felt close to his mother, and by the time of her death, things had come to feel inevitably sad. His father, on the other hand, pressed forward with his artistic career and his friendships. His wife stayed upstairs in her room, sometimes not leaving for long stretches at a time. 
wandering around angrily, not fully dressed, reading out passages from this or that book erratically. John Butler, meanwhile, argued with his sons, shouting at them, and they shouted back. In this wild household, the children thrived creatively. William's brother, Jack Yates, was an Olympic medalist and painter. Before you wonder about his athletic prowess, as I did, let me fill you in. His Olympic medal was in outdoor painting. 1924, that was an event. He He won his medal, silver medal, for his painting called Swimming. The bronze medal that year went to Johann von Hell, I swear I'm not making this up, for his painting, Skaters. These two narrowly beat out T. Eisen of Belgium, who painted Portrait of a Golfer, and they lost to the gold medalist Jean Jacobi of Luxembourg, whose three sport studies beat them all. The real loser that year was French painter Maurice Bousset, who attempted to win with Two entries, Arrival of the Hydroplane and Depart of the Hydroplane. Sadly, he was left off the podium, as was his fellow French artist, Madeleine Cotty, whose bobsled course kind of got the wrong games, <laughs> summer instead of the winter, and her intriguing second entry, Forgotten Games, makes you wonder if she was just there painting winter game events, not quite understanding that the summer games were different. Ah, well, R.G.P. Barron, another French Olympiad artist of the day, submitted one entry called Decorative Panel and another one called Decorative Freeze for Interior Rooms of Clubs, which makes you wonder if he was even at the games at all or if he stayed home, submitted them from a distance. A tough field, but Jack Yates grabbed the glory. Graham Greene owned one of Jack's paintings, A Horseman Enters a Town at Night, which recently sold for £350,000. A couple of others, Jack Yates' paintings have sold for over a million pounds. He was the real deal as an artist. Their sister, Elizabeth, also known as Lolly, became a painter, an art teacher, and publisher. And another sister, Lily, was famous for her embroidery. Lily and Lolly lived together, not happily, running a press that published the family productions, including William Butler's poetry and other writings. But we are here to talk about William Butler, one of the greatest poets of the 20th century, and also a playwright and man of the theater and a politician. There's a lot to cover, so let's do this. Although we're not focusing on the poetry today, let's follow the course of his work a bit. As a poet, he lived in stages. He was another one of our bridges from past to future, ancient to modern in a sense, and you can see that in his poetry. His style changes. He reinvents himself as a poet. It's a remarkable thing, really, and it's commented upon by other poets. Poets looking to have long careers, full of innovation rather than stagnation, look at Yeats as an example. But there's something in all of the periods of Yeats that run through. So when he's ancient... I'm saying ancient, but I really mean Victorian. When he's ancient, he's already modern. And when he's modern, he has some ancient in him. He never stopped his devotion to verse forms, for example. That's what makes him so great. 
Maybe that's not the right way to put it. It's not what makes him great. He's great for other reasons, but it's what makes his greatness fascinating. He's not the bomb thrower who says, you all got it wrong before. I'm here to make everything completely new. And he's not the fuddy-duddy who says, you're all wrong now. It was better in the old days. I'm here to show you how things work. Stop spinning, you stupid world. I'm never going to change. And in all of these phases, even as his style morphs for a reason, why did they morph? Why did he change? Readership, sensitivity to the times, trying to improve, trying to find new ways to express himself, like an artist who doesn't want to fall into old patterns, old routines, who seeks out the new because the new must be sought out. If you look at this one way, it's sort of a flaw. It's easier to see extremes. It's easier to fall into the aesthetics of it. We take it in more smoothly. We can see it, process it, discuss it. It's harder to see the different ages embedded in the same poem, trembling with creative tension. Stylistically, his poems are in equipoise. It's fun to see. It's like a snapshot of a journey, not the postcard from the starting point or the destination, but a quick photo taken along the way. And running through all this is Yeats, a consummate craftsman, a language maven, with an ear and an eye and a sensitivity to the world and the world of ideas, the seen and the unseen both. And he had quirks and visionary elements and a predilection for belief, an interest in myths and the occult and supernatural elements. He lived a very practical life in some ways and had wild, impractical beliefs in others. And then... He writes about it, maybe with a bit more freedom than some others had, because his family was wild and artistic too, supporting him, and and because their press was there to publish what he wanted published. I haven't seen this discussed before, but although he railed against his sisters who were running the press, so much so that his father intervened and said, you can't criticize them like that in letters. You've got to tone it down. Although he had a million nits to pick with the way the press was run, having a press there to bring out dozens of volumes of your Work with you as the editor is a freeing thing, I should think. Your standard for quality must be high or you'll, you'll print a bunch of crap. But if it is high and your quality is good, you don't need to worry about editors saying, eh, not this, too far. I may have deluded myself into thinking this is my masterpiece, he said, my book of books. But how wonderful for a poet to have the freedom to know he could write what he wanted and get it out there. It seemed to work for him, anyway. I got off track with the press, but I wanted to mention the way he's treated by other poets and writers, especially those famous guys who just came after, who came just after, I should say, the 20th century titans like Ezra Pound and James Joyce, two figures essential to modernism. Pound, when he arrived in London, looking to fight the whole establishment, ready to usher in modernism and soon to find Joyce and Eliot, and to some extent Hemingway and some others who would help him do it, and his own poetry too, of course. But before all that, he arrived in London and said that Yeats was the only poet worth reading. And Joyce met Yeats and said, I've met you too late. You're too old for me to influence you. You can't benefit from me. Odd and revered Yeats, of course. We'll hear more about that later. And poets like Ted Hughes were heavily influenced. Virginia Woolf admired him deeply, 
especially as his work progressed. She liked the risks he was taking and the stylistic choices he made as he got further away from the Victorian age and moved more solidly into the 20th century. Idiomatically, she said, his lines run together like someone talking. She said, the lines are all grown together with meaning. Incapable of disintegration, the poems are difficult, not through obscurity of language, but because the thought lies deep and turns strangely. End quote. When she met him in 1930, she wrote this, quote, I pressed his hand when we said goodbye with some emotion, thinking, this is to press a famous hand. It was Yeats. He was born in 1865, so that he is now a man of 65, and I am 48, and thus he has a right to be so much more vital, supple, high-charged, and altogether seasoned and generous. I was very much impressed. End quote. Later she wrote, I must unsay my abuse, for as there at the party, I found Yeats, whom I think, naturally, wrongly, our only living poet, perhaps a great poet, anyhow, a good poet. Being now almost incapable of discretion, I said all the wrong things about poetry, and we had a long discourse. I agreed with many of Yeats's views, and he is surprisingly sensible. He has grown tremendously thick and is rather magnificent looking. In fact, seeing how seldom one meets interesting people, this was a great success. End quote. She said he talked about dreams and dreams, and then stories of Irish life in Brogue, and then the soul's attitude to art. End quote. Another film crew could have been handy for that one. Would have been nice. Yeats was then writing at that point and revising his work A Vision, which was the product of a long immersion in matters of the soul and theosophy and the occult. But let's go back to the young Yeats. We've heard about his wild family, the creative genius, the shouting at one another, the rogue artist father, and the mother who was in kind of mental health decline, erratic in the attic, like so many women of her era. Yeats was born in Dublin, spent much of his childhood in County Sligo in the northwest of Ireland, which he viewed as his spiritual home, and he went back and forth between Dublin and London for his education, spent his summers in County Sligo with his uh, relatives on his mother's side, the merchants, the practical people. <sighs> Here we go. Sometimes I don't know enough about these people when I start talking about them, and sometimes I know too much. Yates falls into that latter category. I could talk for a minute or I could talk for 10 hours just about his life. So I'm going to do this I'll try to run through this. The nuts and bolts of where and when, his life, etc. I'll talk about what I'm calling his Irishness. We'll run through the four women in Yeats's life. Four significant romantic involvements, anyway. We'll discuss his play. Well, no, we're not going to get to his plays, I don't think. Or his politics much. We're going to have to save some of this for later. His philosophy slash mysticism. Ah, and finally, his, well, let's just jump in. Take a break. No time. No time for a break. Yeats was born in Dublin in 1865. I said that already. I don't have enough time and I'm repeating myself. Here we go. He died in 1939 at the age of 73. A lot happened during that life, during that stretch of time, most notably World War I and the Easter Rising of 1916. Both of that affected him deeply. As I mentioned, Yeats spent time in his Childhood in County Sligo in a summer house. When he was out there, he developed a fascination with Ireland and Irish folktales and myths. He never learned Gaelic, but he was prominent in the 
Irish nationalist movement devoted to the cause, but religion-wise, he was in the middle, or maybe I should say standing off to the side. His family on both sides were Protestant, the minority in Ireland's Roman Catholic world, but he wasn't connected to either. He didn't convert to Catholicism and didn't have that faith available to him, and he didn't feel profoundly connected to Protestantism either. He found them to be a little bit uh, focused on material things more than he wanted. Instead, he looked to a tradition older than both one he thought could have that profundity, supply it, and supply some unity, perhaps. I'm talking about Ireland and Irishness, a hidden Ireland that was more pagan than Christian, pre-Christian, one that you could see in the rocks and the mountains and the land, one that left traces in the earth, but even more so in the people, customs, beliefs, holy places, holy sentiment, and traditions. He started publishing poetry when he was in his late teens, published a couple of poems when he was around 20. I should say he started writing poetry in his late teens, published a couple when he was around 20. Two years later, he was devoted to being a professional writer. The family had moved to London, and he joined the Theosophical Society, which was then about 10 years old. The Theosophical Society was about belief, about ancient beliefs, wisdom of the gods. It means... It pulls in traditions from both Eastern and Western religions and cultures. It harkens back to Neoplatonic philosophers, but also Buddhist philosophers and other religions as well. It also studied the occult. By 1905, their creed was, one, to form a nucleus of the universal brotherhood of humanity without distinction of race, creed, sex, caste, or color. Two, to encourage the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science. And three, to investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. End quote. So that's what Yeats had for him, in store for him. In a world increasingly devoted to science, he chose seance. Naturally, he was drawn to the works of William Blake, one of the most visionary poets in English, as well as one of the most visual. Yeats, as the brother and son of painters, could be expected to find all this compelling. But more than that, I think he was drawn to Blake's visions, the trips into fantasy, the prophecy side of Blake. Symbolism, too, which we'll talk about when we get to his poetry, perhaps in a future episode. And now we come to the first love of Yeats's life. Maud gone, an Irish beauty living in London as well. She's the one who sought him out after reading some of his work, which is a bit ironic since he spent most of his adult life chasing her. I can't think of another word to describe Yeats's love for Maud gone than hopeless. This, he said, was when the troubling of my life began. She was an ardent Irish patriot, a rebel, devoted to the nationalist cause, and she pulled Yeats into that with her, partly out of his beliefs in Ireland and Irish nationalism, and partly out of his love for her. Maud never loved him, alas, not as not in a uh, sexual relationship kind of way. Maybe had love for him as a friend. In 1891, he proposed she rejected him. The rest of his 20s were spent pursuing an affair with another woman, Olivia Shakespeare, a British novelist, with whom he lost his virginity. Olivia Shakespeare's daughter, Dorothy Shakespeare, married Ezra Pound about 20 years after this, was a close circle, you might say, and wait until you hear just how close it was for Yeats. 
soon became very close. After the three or so years he spent with Olivia Shakespeare, he was back on the mod wagon. Gone for gone. Mad gone for mod gone. In 1899, he proposed again. And again in 1900. And again in 1901, she refused him every time. Zero for four for our man Yates. He was in his mid-30s now, a successful guy, but it didn't matter. The heart wants what it wants, and for Maud gone, it did not want. Yates, it wanted another man, an Irish nationalist, Major John McBride, whom she married after turning Yates down for the fourth time. Yates was appalled. He felt lost. He was bereft. He attacked McBride in his private diaries. (laughs) I feel like I cheated with that sentence a little bit, but at least I didn't pause dramatically. He attacked McBride in his private diaries. This isn't Austin Powers does literature. Gone converted to Catholicism to Mary McBride, which offended Yeats, the theosophist. He thought she might be controlled by priests. However, what he really objected to was just losing her, the passion of his life, the muse, the wife he wanted. He wanted her in his life. And finally, he got her for one night. The marriage to McBride, Maud's marriage to McBride, was a disaster. McBride frequently got drunk, possibly violent, and and she began to visit Yates in London, which thrilled him. Her divorce thrilled him even more. Three years after the divorce, Yates and Gone met in Paris and consummated their relationship. As men always seem to put it when they're trying not to be crass, it does not seem to have gone well that evening. Their dalliance together, speaking of not being crass, maybe it was a letdown after nearly 20 years of lusting in the direction, at least, from Yates toward Maud Gone. Gone started writing letters to Yates afterwards, praising celibacy, which is not exactly what you want to hear from a former lover, I would say, and saying things in her letters like, She had lost all earth. She had prayed so hard to lose all earthly desire for him and was praying now that he would lose his bodily desire for her. It's good for artists to abstain from sex, she wrote. He wrote again, not exactly what you want to hear from a former lover. He wrote a poem about the night that described her, the beauty, with his arms like twisted thorns folded around the beauty and She was like Helen, the one who had brought great Hector down and put all Troy to wreck. So, still, that's Mont gone. We still have two main women to go, primary figures in his life, and we're not yet done with Maud. Yeats's biological clock started ticking. He wanted to have heirs to pass along his Irishness to contribute to Ireland, so to speak. And when he was 51... He found one. First, he tried to propose to Maud Gone one last time. Why the hell not? Who <laughs> Give it a shot, I guess. She was widowed now, a divorced widow. Major McBride had been executed for his role in the Easter Rising in 1916. But she turned him down, of course. That same year, Yates proposed to Gone. The same year that uh, in 1916, the same year of the Easter Rising and the execution, as soon as McBride was executed, not long after that, Yates proposed to Maud Gone. She turned him down. He now had another option. Gone's daughter, Isolt, 
who proposed to Yates when she was 15. He then proposed to her in 1917 after proposing to her mother and being rejected for the fifth time, but she turned him down too, making him zero for six with the gons. So he proposed a few months later, this is 1917 now, to a woman named Georgie Hyde Lees, who was one of Olivia Shakespeare's friends. She was only 25. Her friends thought that he was too old for her, but they got married and it went pretty well. Their marriage, they had two children together. Eventually, he started having a a few affairs, maybe more than a few, but Georgie wrote him a letter at one point and said that she would keep that to herself. Throughout all this time, Yates had been writing and thinking and learning and experimenting and dabbling and immersing himself in causes, ideals, projects, and, of course, plays and poetry and politics. We'll circle back to some of that, but I want to stick with Georgie for a moment because of the experiences the two of them had putting together a vision, one of the strangest works that a man with a monocle and white hair ever produced. By monocle and white hair, I mean Yeats has come down to us as old, the one who was too old for Joyce, the one who was too old for his wife, the one who was too old to be truly modern, the perpetual uh, rejectee, the suitor who was (laughs) constantly turned down, an old man in a young man's era clinging to his forms as the modernists were breaking them apart. He was an old modernist, kind of an oxymoron. But even at 50 or 52 in this case, he was a seeker. Georgie would go into a trance and reach out to what she and Yates called instructors, spirits from the other world, guides to the unknown, who reported back to the two of them through Georgie as the medium. The reports back were astonishing, an entire system of philosophy these instructors had, based on geometric shapes, pulling in history and conveyable through cones and phases. A vision is a little hard to comprehend. It came out a couple of years after Ulysses, but it's almost Finnegan's Wakeian in being esoteric. And like Finnegan's Wake, there's plenty there for scholars to pour through if they're so inclined. For the rest of us, it's an interesting dabble. But what's more interesting, at least for me, is to know that Yeats was traveling out there. How far out he would go because it unlocks secrets in his other poems, gives you a sense of who the man was, and how much of the iceberg lies under the surface with Yeats. When you read a poem about Yeats growing old or some beloved spot in Ireland, it helps to supply some of his wide range of ideas and passions yourself. They're in there too, even if they're not as explicit as they are in A Vision. And Yeats's politics are there too. That old mother's side, father's side dilemma of practicality versus creativity plays out in Yeats's life. In his late 50s and early 60s, he served for six years in the Irish Senate. He kept writing straight through his life, still publishing books in his 70s. In fact, his greatest poetry is probably from this last stage, the final third of his life. At the age of 69, he underwent something called Steinock surgery, which as far as I can tell was a kind of partial vasectomy that was supposed to increase your testosterone or hormones or something. It apparently doesn't work. I've read that it's been discredited. People aren't running around getting it today anyway. But maybe it had a placebo effect. Yates claimed that it gave him a second puberty, and his newfound erotic energies 
found their outlets in affairs with young women and an excited outburst of poetry. Yeats died at the age of 73 in France. I want to give the last word to one of Yeats's fans and poetic heirs, W.H. Auden. So let's do that now. Let me tell you that we are not done with Mr. Yeats. We haven't taken a very good look at his poems, so we will save that for a future episode. And we haven't discussed his plays at all, which we will also save. I'm not sure if any of his plays survived, really. I haven't ever seen one performed, I don't think. But they were definitely important to him, to understanding his life and his works. He won the Nobel Prize for them, basically. He wrote something like 20 plays, a few more than 20, I think. And my guess is they might be a bit of a history lesson on Irish politics and Irish nationalism of the day. I know he co-wrote a few of them with Lady Gregory, for example, but I'll take a deeper look, and if any of them transcend their era, maybe the plays will deserve their own episode. If not, we'll fold them into the episode on Yeats's poetry. Okay. Okay. And now, Mr. W.H. Auden in the poem, In Memory of W.B. Yeats. One. He disappeared in the dead of winter. The brooks were frozen, the airports almost deserted, and snow disfigured the public statues. The mercury sank in the mouth of the dying day. What instruments we have agree, the day of his death was a dark, cold day. Far from his illness, the wolves ran on through the evergreen forests. The peasant river was untempted by the fashionable keys. By morning tongues. The death of the poet was kept from his poems. But for him, it was his last afternoon as himself. An afternoon of nurses and rumors. The provinces of his body revolted. The squares of his mind were empty. Silence invaded the suburbs. The current of his feeling failed. He became his admirers. Now he is scattered among a hundred cities and wholly given over to unfamiliar affections. To find his happiness in another kind of wood and be punished under a foreign code of conscience. The words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living. But in the importance and noise of tomorrow, when the brokers are roaring like beasts on the floor of the bourse, and the poor have the sufferings to which they are fairly accustomed, and each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom, a few thousand will think of this day, as one thinks of a day when one did something slightly unusual. What instruments we have agree. The day of his death was a dark, cold Two. You were silly like us. Your gift survived it all. The parish of rich women, physical decay, yourself. Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still, for poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making where executives would never want to tamper, flows on south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. 3. Earth, receive an honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let the Irish vessel lie emptied of its poetry. 
In the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its haste. Intellectual disgrace stares from every human face, and the seas of pity lie locked and frozen in each eye. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to our dear listeners and emailers. Who were they? This Oh, yes. Gina and Jeanette. Our thanks also to WB and WH. What a pair of poets those two are. Takes us from 1865 to 1973. Who takes us from there to today? Oh, let's see. Lots of candidates. Maybe we'll put that to a vote or something. A good question for those hacks down at the Literature Supporters Club to mull over while they gnaw in their newspapers and sip their sandwiches. Speaking of which, or speaking of something else altogether, actually, we're going to dive into some music soon. Maybe we need an episode on the Beatles in honor of the Get Back release. Have you been watching this? If you're a a nutter like me, you will be transfixed and transformed. If you're a casual fan, I'm not sure. Might be a little long for you. I have no idea. But you're fit if... I'm getting so excited. I can't even talk. If you're a diehard, go see it. It is going to change you. I'm still absorbing it, but I have some ideas about it I could share with you. And they actually grow right out of our interview with some music critics and theorists who have developed a new way of looking at songs and blues poetry and lyrics and Bob Dylan and those who came before and those who came after. It's a concept that we've circled around here on the podcast and it needed a fuller exploration and these two have provided it. They will share that with us soon. So there we go. Lots to look forward to. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.